Uh, welcome, Mark. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me. Thanks for having me on. Now, you were an accomplished prosecutor in New York. You are a prosecutor's prosecutor, as you write in the book. Uh, I, I, you believed in the system in which you worked. And you were at first skeptical about the Innocence Project. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you came to be an advocate for reform. What, what kinds of things did you see uh, in making that transition? Yeah, well, really, it was by accident. Um, as you mentioned, I was, you know, a prosecutor for many years, and I, I was very proud of my job and loved being a prosecutor. And I went into academia to become a law professor, and the, the first school where I got a job had an innocence project. And when I arrived, they said, you know, the professor who runs it is on sabbatical this year. Since you've got a criminal law background, um, you're going to have to supervise it. Um, I really couldn't say no. You know, I was untenured. I was the new guy on the block. But I remember being just like, oh, geez, you got to be kidding me. You know, there are no innocent people in prison. Uh, that was my view. <clears throat> and I went to the first meeting, and the law students were talking about this guy they just visited in prison named Herman May, and they were totally convinced he was innocent. And I remember just sitting there, like, sort of doing internal eye rolls, thinking, of, you know, what a bunch of bleeding heart, nonsense, romantic, um, you know, law students. But DNA testing ended up proving that he was innocent, and he was released. So it was just a, a huge eye-opener for me. In fact, I call the first chapter of the book Eye-Opener, because um, it's you know sort of made me realize that my assumptions perhaps had been wrong. I'd been a little bit too cocky um, about the criminal justice system that I'd been a part of. And so that first year, I really just sort of went through this process of trying to learn as much as I could. Um, I'm from Cincinnati, and so the next year I got a job at the University of Cincinnati Law School, and there was um, the, Ohio at that time was the largest state that did not have an innocence project. So I had gone through a conversion in that one year, and then the very next year I founded the Ohio Innocence Project. Um, here at University of Cincinnati College of Law. Since we founded in 2003, we've now freed 25 Ohioans who together served 471 years in prison for crimes they didn't commit. Uh, so That's amazing. Amazing. 25 people who had served over 470 years. So just, you know, basic math that comes out to, oh, just under 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. If you can imagine, our longest is Ricky Jackson, who served almost 40 years um, for a murder he didn't commit. And uh, you'd think uh, you'd be totally broken and uh, a mess after you know going in at 18 years old and getting out when you're basically 58. Um, but uh, he's an incredibly inspiring person. He does a lot of public speaking with me. In fact, I have a book signing coming up in Cincinnati in a week or so, and he's doing it with me. Um, so these exonerees are, uh, are often very inspirational people that make you realize that you know when you get upset about traffic or, or stupid things, um, there's a lot more important things in life that, uh, that maybe we're taken for granted. Uh, now, the book looks at wrongful convictions on kind of a human level. I mean, you offer insights into the psychology and the um, at, and also the political incentives at times of prosecutors and the police. Um, but you don't discuss in the book how racial discrimination or implicit bias plays out in, in, in these injustices. Um, that's obviously very prominent in the news these days, mm -hmm. the Black Lives Matters movement, et cetera, et cetera. It's not because you don't think it plays a role, right? Right. I almost put an epilogue, and I decided not to. Maybe you know, in a later edition I will. Um, here was my thinking on that. Obviously, racism is a huge problem in the criminal justice system, and it's a huge part of wrongful convictions. Um, but what I'm focusing on is things like confirmation bias and malleable memory, things that don't get as much attention. And here's how I thought of it. You know, if I, if I were to address racism, it would end up swallowing the book because it's such a problem. 
It's also addressed elsewhere in other books, and I'm sort of bringing out things that haven't been discussed before. And when you really step back and you think about racism, um, racism really, the, the building blocks of it are things like confirmation bias and the psychological flaws that I talk about in the book. And if you tell people up front it's a book about racism, everybody thinks they're not a racist, so they just sort of check out, and they go, okay, well, this doesn't apply to me. But if you sort of um, disengage them or disarm them on that and you, you get them to learn about confirmation bias and tunnel vision and all these psychological flaws that we all have, I almost was going to have an epilogue that said, you know, like, in the end, this book really is about racism because these are the building blocks and now you've learned it. And now you can go back and think of racism in a different way. So it's, it's sort of subtly about racism, but I didn't want to directly attack it uh, for those reasons. I think that the, 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 the points I make um, about the other psychological flaws are, aren't getting enough attention, and I hope I make the point in the book that they're, they are very important and need to be addressed. Now, I think that there's a romantic idea, maybe it comes from movies and TV, that if you can find that key piece of evidence, the, the, you know, the DNA evidence that definitively proves that your client did not commit the crime, is sitting in jail, prosecutors and, and um, judges will want to correct that error. Uh, they're, they're seeking truth, they're seeking justice. And your book is all about how hostile police, prosecutors, judges often are towards efforts to absolve those who have been wrongly convicted and when there's evidence. Um, and you detail how requests for evidence, for records are ignored or treated as some sort of, I don't know, effort to undermine the credibility of the courts. And yet you write that these officials who appear to be operating with an abundance of bad faith and dishonesty, believe themselves to be the good guys and gals. They believe themselves to be doing the right thing. How, how do you square that circle? Yeah, well, the first thing that sort of shocked me uh, when I started doing post-conviction innocence work is, you know, we had several cases where he did DNA evidence, and it was absolutely clear the person was innocent. And I saw these prosecutors, like, just going into denial and spinning all these ridiculous theories about how the person might still be guilty. And they, they almost make you laugh. And my first reaction was, are these people kidding? Like, are they serious? I'm in court thinking this. Like, is this a joke? Like, is this candid camera and there's a camera getting my reaction? And then there's going to be a, you know, a host of the show that comes out and says, just kidding. I mean, that's right. how ridiculous it was. And, and the more I did this and started talking to people, I realized that, you know, what the innocence movement is doing is really pointing out some flaws at the basic core of the criminal justice system. And those in the, in the system are really in denial about it. And I think I was too as a prosecutor. So I started studying the psychology behind it um, and, and how like when you're in a bureaucracy that's very frankly cocky and it's been around for, for centuries and you become a part of it as a prosecutor and you believe that it's like this thing where the, you know, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Um, and then somebody comes along and says there's all these flaws in it. You know, it's very hard for the mind to sometimes accept. Um, and so I think that's one of the things that's different about my book is it's, and, and I have a little bit of a, a grip on that as a former prosecutor because I had that mentality as well. I mean, really, it, you, you, you have a hard time accepting um, and you just tend to write off these people who are, are challenging the system as these outsiders who have these crazy theories and there must be some catch somewhere. And so they just become very closed-minded to any sort of claims of innocence. And that's one of the things we've got to change. I mean, in the, in the private sector, you know, there are incentives for being open-minded um, and for playing devil's advocate. And companies, you know, if, if some executive wants to set up a new branch of their of their company out in the southwest part of the United States, they're not going to let them just spend that kind of money. They're going to have focus groups and they're going to test the idea. They're going to test the hypothesis. And, you know, there's disastrous consequences possible if you don't do that in the private sector. 
But with the government, um, a lot of times we're missing that devil's advocacy. That that, and so there's this sort of complacency and arrogance that just sort of sets in. Um, and and that's one of the things that the book tries to challenge and show that you know, look, um, we need a different mindset here. Now you you mentioned these kind of laughable theories that prosecutors will often offer um, to counter your claims. Just as an example, and I know this is kind of gallows humor, uh, but what is the uh, the unindicted co-ejaculator? Yeah, that's, that's sort of a joke in the innocence movement. Um, we, we refer to all these ridiculous theories as the unindicted co-ejaculator, which is a play on the word co-indicted or, or unindicted co-conspirator, which is a common phrase in American courtrooms. And its most basic iteration is you'll have a client who was convicted of rape, um, and he's been in prison 20 years. And you look at the trial transcript and the, and the victim at trial said, you know, this guy raped me. Um, I wasn't sexually active, um, you know, and they collect semen at the hospital. So there's a rape kit that has the semen of the of the um, of the of the perpetrator. And the, the victim's testimony at trial 20 years ago is very clear that there was one person who raped her, you know, broke into her house or, or whatever the, the terrible ca- the facts of the case may be. And so, you know, 20 years later, the Innocence Project um, does DNA testing and proves that the guy's innocent. And instead of accepting the truth, many times what you'll see the police and prosecutors do is they'll come back and they'll say, oh, okay, so the, the, the DNA, the, the semen that was collected after the rape doesn't match the guy in prison. Clearly, there must have been two rapists. Clearly, the victim was mistaken. Two guys broke into her house. Um, we're, we're getting the DNA results of the other person. We don't know who it is, but your client must have raped her too. He just didn't ejaculate. Um, and, you know, it's just sort of like, are you kidding me? I mean, look at the trial transcript. She said she was absolutely certain it was one person, you know. And so no matter what the evidence is, they'll sort of spin it and come up with these theories in order to justify keeping the person in prison. And you just see it time and time again. So through time, it's become this phrase. Oh, you know, you'll say to somebody they're doing another unindicted co-ejaculator theory. That means they're just spinning things in ridiculous ways. And this is common enough that that this kind of bit of gallows humor has developed um, it's uh, is, is disturbing. You talk about this idea of administrative evil. Individuals would not necessarily do things that they might do when they're part of a bureaucracy that, that um, subtly and otherwise uh, affirms their actions. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, administrative evil is a psychological concept that came out uh, after the Holocaust where you know you had people that were otherwise good people, just regular Germans that participated in this, um, and, and and thousands and thousands of them, and um, you know who weren't part of the Nazi Party originally and just got you know, and and you see this in bureaucracies where um, the theory is that when when people are part of large bureaucracies like the criminal justice system, um, and everyone's sort of moving in lockstep in unison and they're following certain policies, they're conditioned to you know, do X, Y, Z in this circumstance. Um, prosecutors in particular and police officers will do things that cause great injustice that are they're really unfair, um, like fight these claims and not let an innocent person out of prison. Um, and what they're doing is they're sort of, when you work in a bureaucracy like that, the, the values of the bureaucracy and the policies and the steps you're supposed to take sort of replace your internal moral compass. Um, and I knew this as a prosecutor where you're just, you get conditioned to just follow what you're supposed to do. Um, and if you really could step out of that role, somebody could just sort of shake you out of that bureaucratic mindset and say, step back from this a minute. Look at why you went to law school. Look what you're actually doing to this person. 
Um, who cares about the policy? You know, you, you might have a different reaction. An objective person might have a different reaction. But when you've been in that system, you've been a prosecutor for 10 years, you've been a police officer for 20 years, you become so conditioned to just, my job is I'm supposed to fight this claim. I'm, I'm not supposed to admit that a mistake's been made. And, and you just sort of do it robotically without even ever thinking about it. Um, and I give many examples of, of prosecutors who have done that and as how I did that as a prosecutor. I mean, part of the reason why I wrote the book is because you know, I see all these problems that are, are, are being caused. I used to have that mentality. And so for me, it's somewhat of a, of a confessional and a memoir where I'm talking about things that I did as a prosecutor that I now see in a totally different light um, because I was just part of the bureaucracy and I got caught up in it. This is Joshua Holland. I'm speaking with Mark Godsey about his new book, Blind Injustice. Uh, when you talk about people being kind of immune to the effects of, of, of their actions, um, you write that a key piece to all of this is the dehumanization that's kind of inherent in the job of locking people up. You have to see them as cases rather than individuals. Uh, and, and you've seen and you detail in the book prosecutors and judges who appear to be completely immune to the, uh, the hardships that people who have been uh, unjustly convicted of a crime suffer often for years on end. Just as an example of this, can you tell us a little bit about Nancy Smith? Yeah, well, I mean, what happens is when you're a prosecutor, and I was like this, after a while, um, you've dealt with so many cases that the people just sort of become numbers. The cases just become files. And so when I was a prosecutor and we win a case that would send somebody away for decades, you know, we would celebrate, go out and party, woohoo, you know, high fives and all this kind of stuff. And, I, you know, I, I sort of look back on that differently now. I remember at one point, when I was a prosecutor, we were celebrating after we won a case, and the, the judge sent a note that said, "Look, um, this is a somber occasion. You know, this wrecks this person's family. Nobody wins in the criminal justice system. It's a necessary evil to send people to prison, but you shouldn't be celebrating." And I remember at the time thinking that was crazy. Um, and you know, one of my clients, Nancy Smith, was exonerated and freed, and the prosecution refused to admit that a mistake had been made. They kept appealing it, and they eventually got her exoneration overturned, not because she wasn't innocent, not because the court thought she was guilty. But because of jurisdictional issues, the, the Ohio Supreme Court ultimately said the trial court didn't have jurisdiction to exonerate her, which meant she had to go back to prison right now until we could like fix it. So she'd have to sit in prison while we relitigated the case, which could take forever. Um, and so she agreed to take a plea deal um, in order that she wouldn't have to go back to prison. And it was just an absolutely gut-wrenching decision for her. She didn't know if she was making the right decision um, and you know, basically on the verge of vomiting through this entire court proceeding. The day that it happened, the courtroom was just full of cameras and Dateline NBC and everybody else was there. And the judge came out in his robe for this proceeding and looked at all the cameras and just sort of started laughing and said, hey, if I'd known there were going to be cameras here today, I would have gotten myself a haircut. And then just kept cracking jokes um, and, you know, and, and hamming it up for the cameras. And I, I remember it just dawned on me, you know, I used to be like that. Like this guy's completely oblivious to the human suffering in the room. It's just another day at work for him. Um, because he's been caught up in this bureaucratic mindset and that's exactly how I used to be and you know so I wanted to write about um, the effects of that and how you sort of lose your humanity when you've been involved in the criminal justice system for so long it was like sort of sitting there watching a doctor tell somebody they have six weeks to live but cracking jokes while they're doing it and um, and, and, and many in the criminal justice system because we don't have the right training we don't have the right mindset uh, to fight these bureaucratic effects of dehumanization administrative evil and things like that um, it happens more than it needs to and uh, she was, I mean, she was clearly innocent. If, 
if she had had a robust offense, would she have been in prison? Oh, Tell us a little bit about her case. Absolutely not. I mean, there's a whole Dateline NBC episode. It's an hour long. You can find online. Um, just Google Nancy Smith um, uh, Head Start cases, Dateline NBC. It's 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 a great hour long episode. But um, yeah, there was. I mean, in the early '90s, there was a 60 Minutes episode where there was a daycare center that um, the parents alleged that their like three year olds had been molested. And they all ended up suing the daycare center, and it was federally funded by Head Start, so they all got million-dollar settlements, multi-million-dollar settlements. <clears throat> After that 60 Minutes episode aired, there were these copycat claims at daycare centers all across the country, and they all had something in common, or many of them did, which is that they would be ones who had deep pockets, like they were federally funded or something else, and all these families got millions of dollars. We now know that in a, in a lot, if not most, of these cases, the, the charges were trumped up. Um, and the parents got these little kids to say things that, that weren't true. And Nancy Smith's case was one of those. She was a bus driver for Head Start, so she would um, go on a bus route, and she would pick up these little kids, like three- and four-year-olds, take them to um, daycare, and then at the end of the day, pick them up at the daycare and take them home. And she went to another job in between the bus driving, and so in the middle of the day when the kids are in school. And one of the parents got several of the parents whipped up that on a particular day in question – Nancy didn't take their kids to school, but instead took them to her boyfriend's house where they allegedly abused the children all day and then took them home at the end of the day. And what's amazing about this is, um, you know, Nancy has a bus aid because you can't just have a bus driver on a bus with a bunch of, of three and four year olds that, you know, the kids will go nuts. You have to have somebody in the back keeping them calm. And the, the, the bus aid would be ready to testify. That never happened. Um, in addition to that, all the kids actually were marked present at school that day. Um, on top of that, Nancy would go to another job between dropping the kids off in the morning and come back and picking them up at the end of the day, and the records show that she was at work that day. So there was conclusive proof from multiple sources that this never happened, um, and the defense attorney actually did no work whatsoever. The, 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 the testimony of the children were so ridiculous. They'd changed their story so many times. It was clear uh, to an objective person they'd been coached by their parents. He just thought that there's no way they was going to get a conviction in this case. Um, didn't put on any of this evidence that demonstrated innocence. And then she ended up having to serve 15 years in prison um, before all this came out and she was ultimately freed. I mean, the judge eventually said, you know, he had no confidence in the verdict and, and overturned it and acquitted her as innocent. Um, but, you know, 15 years in prison because of a defense attorney that uh, basically laid down. Uh, it's it's so disturbing. Yeah, it, one would think that the kinds of problems you detail in the book would be less prominent in the world of forensics because... It's a it's a field of science. There's a right. scientific method. People publish studies, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not necessarily the case, is it? I mean, that's one of the things um, that I think the public would be most shocked about because of all these television shows like CSI, where we think that these forensics are on par with putting man on the moon, like there's some you know amazing miracles of modern science, and, and the reality is so far from that. Um, in 2009, the National Academy of Sciences, which is an independent agency came out with a scathing report showing how bad the state of forensics is in this country. We need a complete overhaul. Um, all kinds of, of wrongful convictions caused by faulty forensic testimony. Um, sciences that are frankly junk science that are being used to convict people have been for decades. Uh, I mean, I can go on forever about this. There's all kinds of examples. But even even in addition to just the, the problem that many of the sciences that are used, so-called sciences with quotes, um, in the courtroom are not actually valid, validated or reliable, um, we've recently discovered how confirmation bias plays such a big effect. Um, like there's a, a, a psychologist named Itiel Dror out of London that did these amazing studies where 
he went to like leading fingerprint experts and he said, you know, um, we have a case where a fingerprint expert years ago testified that the defendant's fingerprint was found at the crime scene and that caused the guy to get convicted. But we now know the person's innocent. He wasn't at the crime scene. We know that the fingerprint expert made a mistake. Can you look at the fingerprint from the crime scene and the defendant's fingerprint from that case and tell us where the fingerprint expert went wrong at the trial so many years ago? And so that's what he would send to these experts. What the, each expert didn't know is that Etiel George had actually gone into their own case files and they, they had pulled a fingerprint that that individual expert had called a match in court years before and caused the person to get convicted. Um, and so they're, they're looking at one of their own things that they called a match, but now they're being told this is from a case where there was a mistake made. Of course, fingerprint experts don't recognize fingerprints they looked at several years ago. Like All they do is look at fingerprints all day long. So they didn't sure. realize they were looking at one of their own cases. And he got 80% of them to flip their answer and to say, oh, yeah, yeah, this is not a match. There's a discrepancy here. There's a discrepancy there. Um, and he's replicated this in all different sorts of the forensic sciences because – and what it shows is how the human mind works, which has been demonstrated. I talk about this in great deal in, in chapter four of my book. Um, you know, When you're told an answer beforehand, your, your mind is set up to actually only look for evidence that confirms what you solidly believe the answer will be. And your mind won't even register conflicting information. So when these um, fingerprint experts – and this is what I did as a prosecutor – you're often told by the police and prosecutor, hey, we know this guy did it. We know the fingerprint's going to match. We know the bullet's going to come from his gun blah, 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 just confirm it for us. The mind actually operates differently when it's doing the analysis than it would if you were set up sort of blinded or more neutral. Um, and so they're not seeing some of the discrepancies, which shows that it's not a fingerprint match. Um, so it's just actually mind-blowing stuff. It's just fascinating um, how confirmation bias plays a role. And, you know, despite the fact that we know this, and despite the fact that in 2009 the National Academy of Scientists came out and said, we've got to start doing this differently, we can't tell forensic science scientists what the right answer is before they start. There needs to be some sort of screening mechanism there. Um, nothing's changed. Uh, they still do it the way they did when I was a prosecutor, which is basically tell the expert what the right answer is before they start. And you talk in the book about how some of these professional associations really actively push back on real research that questions the validity of their methods. Um, it, I'm, there's so much to chew on in this book. I'm probably going over time with you. Do you have a few more minutes? I sure do. Okay. So psychology alone doesn't explain all of the dynamics that you detail in the book. Having been on both sides of the courtroom, can you talk a little bit about the political incentives that come into play in terms of um, denying the um, denying what is sometimes very plain evidence of innocence. Yeah, I mean, I was a federal prosecutor in New York City, and the, the prosecutors and the judges are appointed by the president. You know, they don't have to run for re-election. They don't have to get the endorsement of local law enforcement. Um, and so, when I came back to Ohio, which is my home state, and started doing innocence work, I was absolutely shocked at how the judges just seemed completely politically aligned with the prosecution. The prosecutors just were, as I mentioned before, sort of in denial, hardcore, we're not going to admit the mistake's been made, we're going to try to keep this person in prison. Um, the judges just seemed to just line up with the prosecution and just would ignore plain evidence of innocence. Um, and, you know, so I detail in chapter three of the book how the politics of elections, you know, cause prosecutors, they always want to look tough on crime, um, to just have knee-jerk reactions that they're just conditioned to just look tough on crime all the time instead of being reasonable in some cases. Um, and judges the same way. I mean, in my, in my local city of Cincinnati, we have elected um, judges. You know, the main 
uh, person that the judges want to get to endorse them and appear on commercials with them uh, come a re-election time as the prosecutor. Um, and this is common in you know the 38 states where we have elections. And so if they do something as a judge, it's going to really upset the prosecution. In, in my county, at least, many times the prosecutor will run somebody against them and endorse that person. Um, so it creates this dynamic that I've seen in these innocence cases where the system is not really neutral and fair, like many people expect it to be, where it's just, let's get to the right result, and I'm a judge, and I'm supposed to just like look at the evidence objectively. Um, it's really politically stacked um, against the pros- against the defense and for the prosecution. And so I give many examples about that uh, of that and talk about that in depth in Chapter 3. Um, I think anybody who's gone through what I've gone through would, would understand the, the, the need to move away from the election process because one of the reasons the founders made the federal um, system set up so the judges are appointed is that we do need insulation from the political process for at least one of the branches. And there, there is some research that shows that elected judges tend to be harder on crime, tougher on crime, as they say, than uh, appointed judges. Particularly in election years. Particularly in election years. Um, there is, uh, you talk also in the book about this kind of casual uh, bias where judges think of prosecutors as their team. Uh, whereas the defense, the defense attorneys are are uh, seen in many cases as kind of the adversarial, the other, the the visiting team, if you will, right. uh, to the to the to the prosecutors, to the judges' uh, home team. Um, briefly, before I let you go, uh, let's talk a little bit about how you think some of the issues that you talk about in the book um, could be addressed uh, with with uh, with kind of common sense reforms. Yeah, well, that's what chapter eight is about. I mean, some of them are fairly simple, like there needs to be screening mechanisms set up for the forensic sciences so that the experts are truly using the scientific method. They're doing it in a vacuum. They don't know what the right answer is before they start. You know, that's a fairly inexpensive reform that can be done that we're still not doing. Um, In terms of, you know, I have a whole chapter on memory malleability and how the way lineups are done, when they, the way they show photos to witnesses and things like that, uh, taint the outcomes. And so there's there's very simple steps that can be done that changes eyewitness identification process and interrogation process to cut down on false confessions. Um, this is not groundbreaking stuff. The research on, on how to reform the system has been out there a long time, and I summarize that in Chapter 8. Like I said, a lot of it is easy, like those things. Um, other things like changing the system so the judges and prosecutors are not elected anymore would be much more difficult. Um, you know, and that may take generations or decades of, of yelling and screaming in order to get people to realize that, um, that needs to, maybe that'll never happen. Um, but, uh, but yeah, some of the things that are causing wrongful convictions and some of the leading causes like eyewitness identification, false confessions and, um, and faulty forensics, there are fairly inexpensive steps that can be done to really minimize the error rate. Um, one of the frustrating things about it is that so little has been done, even, now eight years since the National Academy of Sciences came out um, and called for some of these reforms. And that plays back into the basic thesis of your piece, of your book, which is that the uh, system is set up to protect the system, really. Uh, and, and the actors within it have every reason to, to kind of play along. Mark, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I really do appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me on. Folks, the book is called Blind Injustice, a former prosecutor exposed to the psychology and politics of wrongful convictions. I highly recommend you give it a read.